Hello, Vass here. Welcome to the podcast. This week, we're looking at a big idea behind the headlines. Why do bad people disproportionately rise to power? And what motivates them when they get there? Do broken systems produce authoritarian leaders? And if so, what can we do about it? Journalist John Ronson and political scientist Brian Klass joined us to consider the relationship between power, psychopathy and corruption, with relevance both to Putin and the invasion of Ukraine and wider historical trends. John is one of my favourite writers and one of the most celebrated British journalists of our time. He's the author of Them, Adventures with Extremists, The Men Who Stare at Goats and, most famously, The Psychopath Test. Brian is a columnist for the Washington Post and a political scientist at University College London. He's the author of Corruptible, a new book exploring whether power corrupts or whether corrupt people seek power. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that you're not going to like the answer, but that doesn't mean that we can't change things for the better. Well, that's plenty from me. Here are John and Brian. I thought, Brian, I should ask first, uh, how did you how did you get into this? How did you get into global politics? And how did you get into specifically being interested in the relationship between power and personality disorder and corruption and so on? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So um, I started my career, I was studying uh, authoritarian leaders and places around the world where democracy was quite broken. And I found myself in the room with uh, some former presidents, some former despots, some people who had ordered torture, all sorts of really awful people. And first off, that was an interesting experience in itself that I wanted to write about and sort of what it's like to shake hands with a war criminal or to be speaking to somebody or laughing with someone who you know is a horrific person. But also the thing that struck me was when I came back and I would tell these stories to people, the sort of comment that caught me off guard was people would say things like, that sounds a lot like my boss, or that sounds like the guy who runs my homeowners association. And so I started to sort of think a little bit about this bigger question of power and whether it's true that there's petty dictators sort of lurking among us in our homeowners associations and sports teams and in our mid-level management who, if they were thrust into becoming you know, the dictator of Turkmenistan uh, would become monsters. So that was the sort of origin story of the book. And then I, I collated all this, you know, things that I learned from speaking to 500 people around the world and trying to understand that question of whether power corrupts or whether corruptible people seek power and ultimately decided it was both, but that the dynamics were worth writing about in a book because uh, they're much less straightforward than you might expect. Yeah, I, I think I came into it in a similar way. I, I, I happened to be talking to this Harvard psychologist called Martha Stout, who said that you were four times more likely to have a psychopath at the top of the tree than at the bottom. There's a particular mental disorder, which happens to be the worst mental disorder <laughs> in the world. I, I should say, by the way, for psychopaths, it's not the worst mental disorder. It's a great mental disorder because there's no remorse, there's no guilt, or there's no anxiety. All the things that keep you morally good are, are, are absent. So I've always thought the psychopathy is, was the most, presumably the most pleasant feeling of all the mental disorders. But what Martha Stout was saying to me just I thought was it was extraordinary. Like, are you telling me that there's this particular mental disorder and it's the worst one and it rules the world? Like of all the mental disorders, this is the one you're much more likely to find. And so I so like you, I started saying this to people. I like I heard this incredible thing. And they'd go like, um, oh yeah, like as in, of course, all of our leaders are psychopaths, like duh. And I'm and I was thinking, no, don't just like toss that off glibly. That's a big thought. That's like a huge thought. So that was what led me into it for the same reason, because it's, well, I would, if you're okay with this, Brian, I want to go kind of straight to this. Uh, right now, we've got the most extraordinary case, case study and comparison in Putin and Zelensky. So first, will you talk a little bit about how Putin fits into the research that you've done and maybe specifically the research into narcissism and psychopathy? And then I wouldn't mind talking about, okay, so what about Zelensky? How come he got to be leader? So there's a few areas of the book that touch on some of the dynamics around Putin. 
Uh, first is he probably is uh, psychopathic, but you know I'm not I'm not someone who can make a clinical diagnosis from afar. Uh, it's usually a thing that involves lots of experts and questionnaires and scrutiny. But I, I think there is probably a significant chance based on his behavior that he has significant dark triad traits being psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. Now, I think there's a few things that are worth thinking about with Putin. One is this question of how he comes to power and why we gravitate towards these leaders. And this is a question that that I think is quite uncomfortable for some people to grapple with because we have to think about why we are drawn to these people who are clearly unfit to lead. And, and one of the areas of research that I found really interesting was around evolutionary psychology and the explanation of why strongman leaders, which mm. the term is no accident, uh, tend to be so popular. And, and the argument they comes from the, from the Stone Age. Exactly. Exactly. So they tend to take this idea that back in the past, there was a real adaptive trait, which was if you're being invaded or you're starving, to turn to a physically strong male um, who says, basically, I can fix it for you. And that meant that there was a sort of template in our brains that made it more likely we would turn to these people in times of crisis, which is one of the reasons, perhaps, why as Putin's popularity slips, he is presenting himself as a strongman figure who can fix things, right? It's why you manufacture crises as a strongman, because it is particularly acute in psychology research when there are moments of of fear, basically, in the public. And on top of that, it's also why Vladimir Putin is shirtless all the time. He's not tall. He's not tall. No, he's got to compensate one, another way because height and this sort of physically strong male thing, both of them work. He doesn't have the height. He's got to work on the shirtlessness and he's got to work on, on you know, manufacturing crises, which this war ultimately is. Now, I think he probably thought, and this is the, the, the other point that I'd, I'd speak about, I think he probably thought that this was going to go really well. I assume that he imagined that he would get the same sort of sanctions that he came to expect every other time he sort of broke the rules, so to speak, you know, poisoned someone or in, you know, annexed Crimea and got the proverbial slap on the wrist. And the reason that might have happened is, again, with this sort of psychology of these leaders is they start to drink their own Kool-Aid. I mean, you know, for, for somebody like Putin, he's surrounded by people who are afraid of telling him the truth. And he's also got all the dynamics I talk about in the book of the longer you're in power, the more you start to get your psychology and your you know, neurochemistry actually warped by that experience. So I think he was delusional. I, th- I think that he believed that you know, Ukrainians might welcome him. I think he thought there would be a slap on the wrist. And now we're dealing with this, this problem of someone with dark triad traits who's cornered, who has understood it didn't go well. And that's a really dangerous situation because- you can't right. just step down. I think that's the, the problem we're in right now is, is he going to just escalate to try to save face? Right. Well, there's, there's a couple of things that you said there that I wanted to pick up on. One was you said that, well, you, you kind of implied it was, it was tactical and it was like rational and thought out uh, in, in its way. But you could argue that there's a fundamental irrationality with, with narcissism and psychopathy because one of, the, one of the traits is they want to be the smartest person in, in the room. And to be the smartest person in the room often means you have to reach for counterintuitive thoughts that nobody else is thinking. So everybody in the room is suggesting one thing. If you have psychopathy or narcissism or whatever it's going to be, you're going to maybe choose the opposite because that's part of your, your pathology. I think that's one of the reasons why you'll presumably find people who score high with narcissism within the leadership of QAnon, because mm. it's, all about, it's all about coming up with counterintuitive information that makes you smarter than everybody else. I think there's a big connection between conspiracy theories and, and narcissism. Uh, the, 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 the second thing you said, oh yeah, is about being cornered. I agree. I think people with psychopathy and narcissism handle being cornered really badly like if everything's going well it's sort of fine you can massage their ego and they won't fly off the handle but when things start to go wrong that's when they can really spiral right yeah well and i think this is this aspect of control right i mean a lot of a lot of psychopaths really like feeling in control and i think the other angle of this which you know a lot of the psychopathy experts i talk to discuss is is this idea of whether you can dial it down when you need to or not, like whether you can sort of blend in when the moment calls for it. And the successful psychopaths, the functional psychopaths are very good at doing this. The dysfunctional ones, of course, you know, they, they lash out, they end up in prison quite often and so on. And so, you know, Putin is clearly functional at, at a certain level, at least within the Russian system. And you're right. I mean, I think there is this aspect of sort of going against the grain. Perhaps his advisors told him this would be 
a bad idea and he thought he knew better. I mean, who knows exactly what's going on in Vladimir Putin's head. But I do think that's the that's why I think this is so dangerous because you have this leader for whom failure really isn't an option. He's driven by this idea not just of himself, but I think he also on a you know sort of psychoanalysis from afar, I think this idea of like a lost Russian empire is pretty big in his thinking at the moment as well. And you know, he's he's behaving in a way that is is just corner, as I said, cornering himself where escalation seems to be the only possible opportunity, but probably won't be affected by all the images that we're seeing of horrific death and destruction. And that's why, you know, as you said at the beginning, you know, uh, this is a problem because we've designed systems that make these people more likely to get into positions of power and they're the worst possible people to have it. And yet they're overrepresented dramatically uh, in these posts. Yeah. uh, Not being upset by horrific images. Um, by the way, I think in a second we should talk about psychopathy and whether what we're doing right now in kind of assuming that Putin is a, is a psychopath is, is ethical or not. So I think it'd be worth having a little conversation about that. But before we do, if, if he is one, I remember Robert Hare, the kind of king of psychopathy diagnoses, he did this thing when I was on his course where he just showed some images of uh, flowers a beach and we're all sort of lulled we're looking at these images and then he shows an image of somebody who had been shot in the face and his face had been and we all like it takes us a second for our amygdala to sort of you know explode but it does and we're all like Ugh! and he says that doesn't happen in the brain of psychopaths mm-hmm. it's not horror it's curiosity but I think it is worth talking you know for the since 2016 there's been this big problem about you know what is it, um, duty to warn versus the Goldwater rule. Rather than me blow on about this, do you, do you want to talk about those two things and talk about, you know, how, how you've kind of grappled with navigating them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a, it's always a difficult aspect of talking about psychopathy with people in the public eye because, of course, there is a clinical diagnosis. And, and it's something that is very, very... Detailed. I mean, I, I interview people who do these diagnoses for prisoners, for example, and it's a huge, huge thing to do because it has massive implications for their sentencing and rehabilitation risk and all this type of stuff. And, and what I found fascinating about this was that, of course, there's the risk of, first off, for people who you actually have access to, whether they'd lie to you, right? Malingering, this idea of, uh, you know, extremely duplicitous people. You talk about this in the opening of Psychopath Tests uh, with a really memorable story. I think the guy was Tony. Um, and, 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 you know, it's this, this, this aspect where you have people who might be able to manipulate the test in some way. And those are the people who you actually have access to. You have their files. You have all the advantages. When you're talking about, you know, people from afar, I mean, I was, I was very lucky in the sense that I had access to interview several former heads of state. I mean, I sat down with some people who did horrible stuff that often don't sit down with people. So I had good access in that regard. But when you talk about Putin, I mean, very few people, if anyone, unless he's getting a psychological analysis done for his own reasons, have actually had the opportunity to talk to him in this setting. So, you know, it's why I'm always careful to think about the weighing up the sort of, do I have the, the sort of expertise to infer based on behavior versus the ethical questions related to this? I think they're very, very difficult. But of course, it's a slippery slope. You, you, you call Trump a psychopath and what's next? Are you calling a vanker a psychopath? It, it becomes, this is pointed out to me that armchair diagnoses may be okay if the person that you're diagnosing from your armchair is clearly, you know, narcissistic or psychopathic or whatever but what it does is is normalizes the idea of just you know oh i'm so ocd oh that person you know which is clearly a real a real problem but then you have the duty to warn people who were a bunch of psychologists who were saying or and psychiatrists who were, including very eminent ones like james gilligan who i mm. you know hugely admire who, who who's the man who invented the connection between um shame and violence he said every act of violence has a has some shame attached to it. it it's, a, it's trying to fill shame with self-esteem. Anyway, they're the ones who say, no, 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 we've got to start diagnosing people as psychopaths. It's too dangerous. We're in too difficult position. We need to, we need to just say it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've been talking about, and I, I, I don't write this specifically in the book, but I've talked about it a few times since, is people have said to me, you know, how can we get a better diagnosis 
for politicians? Like, how can we actually figure this out? And there's been some efforts to sort of diagnose it through observational data, how they behave, how they talk, et cetera, which is all quite flimsy in a lot of ways. But what I suggest is, I said, you know, I think the New York Times or one of these outlets that does um, interviews for presidential candidates, should they what, they, what happens every time there's a presidential election, they all make the pilgrimage to the New York Times offices and they all get interviewed. And then they sort of discuss the results and they talk about what the Q&A was involved. I think they should spring on them a sort of test and a psychopath test and say, it's voluntary, right? If you don't take it, we'll just let the voters know that you didn't take it. Because I like the idea of a norm being established that this is sort of like the tax returns, right? It's not required, but if you're not willing to submit yourself to a psychopath test, that's sort of a worrying thing for voters to, to think about. So, you know, I, I say it slightly tongue in cheek because I don't think it's going to happen, but I, I do wish that there was a way to sort of warn people, but also actually diagnose people right. as, as best we can. Well, it's funny that you should say that because a number of years ago, I did an interview with uh, Katie Hopkins, who was mm. a agent provocateur, British columnist, and and I did the psychopath test on her. And I said to her, look, I'm not trying to, you know, I do not have the expertise, but can I give you these 20 traits and tell you what you think? Because, you know, whether it, because they're really interesting areas to go to in an interview anyway, uh, whether or not you don't have as much empathy as you should, whether you're impulsive, uh, whether you are sexually promiscuous, you know, all these items on the checklist. It's a kind of fun structural way of interviewing somebody anyway. But actually, I, um, in the very earliest days of Trump's campaign, kind of everyone was getting to interview him. And the Guardian said to me, do you want to do the psychopath test on Trump? And I, and I was like, yes. But by the time we, we made the approaches, things had changed in the Trump camp and he wasn't doing every interview anymore. And so I, I, I missed, but I had that opportunity and, and, mm. it, and it, slipped, it slipped away, I'm afraid. To say. Yeah. I, I, lo- I lost that uh, a bit myself in the, in the pandemic. Actually, I, I was trying to arrange, you know, I mean, you talked about with hair, how you show images to people and their amygdala sort of light up if they're normal, you know, some of the methods that, that have become quite advanced with fMRI machines and so on with all of this, um, I was going to have myself tested this way as part of the book research. It was, it was scheduled for early on in the pandemic. So I had to cancel the trip, but I was going to write about that experience because there's also these, these devices that can sort of blunt emotion that have been developed in a way that it's, it's an interesting aspect though, when I was thinking about this, and I, this is always the aspect that I wonder with the research participants is there's this little voice, even though they say it's safe and so on. I'm like, if they're going to blunt my emotion with a machine, what if it doesn't come 100% back? You know what I mean, like, what if, what if they affect me in a way that's a little longer than I thought it would be? So yeah. there's a, it's, it's a really yeah, interesting area of research. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and the other thing Hare did before he came up with, in the 70s, when this kind of thing was allowed, in the 70s, as far as I can tell, in terms of Canadian asylums, anything went you know, you had all of MK Ultra, you had James Cameron brainwashing people, literally blasting sounds into their ears until they had no memory left. Um, but what Hare used to do was he would get psychopaths and he'd, he'd hook them up to sweat and, you know, everything, a heartbeat, and he'd count down from 10 to 1. And, he, and at 1, he'd give an electric shock. And then, and I think we can extrapolate this to Putin's behaviour in a way, because then he'd say... And when he gave him the electric shock, you know, the heart went and the sweat. And then he said, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to count down from 10 to 1, and at 1, I'm going to give you electric shock. Now, in the non-psychopaths that he tested, their heart, as, as it was getting closer and closer to 1, their heart rates were pounding, they were sweating. Mm. But with the psychopaths, nothing. And, it, and he concluded it was as if they had forgotten the punishment. Mm. Um, and I think he extrapolated that that maybe that's why there's such a high recidivism rate among psychopaths. I can't remember the rate, but it's higher than in the normal population because you just, you forget the pain, mm. you forget the punishment. And that's another worrying thing about, about Putin right now, right? You don't learn yeah, well, mistakes. Yeah, I mean, uh, but also I think the thing that that is so that was so worrying to me, the more, because you know, I'm a political scientist by training. So I was interviewing a lot of these psychopathy experts who both work in neuroscience and psychology and all sorts of, 
disciplines that are, you know, tackling similar people, but from a totally different angle. And what struck me, the more that I learned about this, and also from your book, was I thought, you know, how much of modern society related to power is performative? In other words, is, is this thing where manipulation is possible because, and especially if you're narcissistic and you're actually pretty good, if you have modest levels of narcissism, it can be an advantage in these situations because you're really attuned to how people see you. So like, how have we set up a society in which manipulative people who are good at sort of being chameleon-like in the right situation are able to wiggle their way to the highest reaches of power? And the answer is so obvious. I mean, what is the job interview, if not a performance for a, a chameleon-like Machiavellian person to manipulate you, right? right. And, and I think there's not enough discussion of this. Like we have certain traits that are overrepresented in power that are, you know, being extroverted does not make you a psychopath, but being extroverted does make you better at job interviews probably. So we have, we have certain elements of how you get power in modern society that are correlated with specific traits that may at best be neutral in how they determine how you'll wield power. And at worst actually ensure that the people who are most manipulative are best at obtaining power and staying in it. And I also think this is true for, you know, how slippery you have to be in, uh, in interviews if you're a politician. Like the, the, the people who survive in politics the longest are those who are able to either manipulate their way out of a jam or mm -hmm. end up deflecting questions and have shamelessness, whatever. I mean, we're selecting for certain traits that we don't actually think are good for people in power. And this aspect you're talking about uh, with psychopaths is absolutely one of those based on modern society. Yeah, well, superficial charm, glib superficial charm, but also what you were just saying about lying. One of the items on the hair checklist is pathological lying, but it's not just regular pathological lying. It's pathological lying and not being embarrassed when you're caught lying. Uh, I thought that was, that was very interesting. You just, it, it doesn't matter, you just move on to the next lie or whatever. You, you mentioned performativeness. Um, oh, which reminded me that uh, Paul Babiak, who wrote Snakes in Suits mm. with Robert Hare, uh, he told me that sometimes he's invited, uh, you know, Human Resources invites him in to try and weed out the psychopaths um, in the short list of candidates. And he said he was always worried that when he identified the psychopaths secretly, they'd be the ones given the job. <laughs> instead of rooted out because as well as being performative and being charismatic and I don't know if there's ever been any studies about physical attractiveness of psychopaths and or mm. uh, certainly anecdotally psychopaths do well do well like um and I don't know whether it's because they I don't know whether they have sort of the they can make themselves good looking um I often People are, people are attracted by absence, right? People are attracted by people who hold something back, mystery. And with psychopaths, there's a huge absence. There is something missing, it's empathy. So uh, maybe that's got something to do with it. People think they're charismatic and mysterious, but in fact, they're just unempathetic and are faking mm. it. But of course, the other thing is that, and you made a really good point in your book about how very often with psychopaths, it's short term. They're really successful for a while, but then they commit accounting fraud or, or you know, something happens and, and, and it all blows up. And that seems to happen because one of the items on the checklist is irresponsibility and another one is impulsivity. So it stands to reason that if you've got a proper high scoring psychopath in power, it's going to go wrong eventually. It's not going to last forever. Um, but the other thing, of course, is, is when you're talking about psychopaths at the top of a company, if you're happy to just shut down factories and fire people without any remorse, then the shareholders are going to love you. So I think the other thing is not only does psychopathy make you want to propel you from the inside, because when you have no empathy, what's left is just the will to win, but also... Uh, society's rewarding psychopathic character traits, especially share, you know, shareholders. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, it, it's a real problem in business, of course. And it's its a problem depending on the culture of the area as well, because if you're somebody who's unable to sort of discipline your psychopathic or dark triad traits, you're going to get exposed at some point, unless you have, like Putin does, the ability to basically kill people who try to expose you, right? So, I mean, this is this is one of the things that I think is is quite dangerous around psychopaths in certain contexts in less democratic areas, for example, is when people try to sort of be the whistleblower, 
um, you know, there's a culture of fear around that person. Whereas here, you know, th- that's why a lot of the psychopathy experts told me there's a pretty strong line between the functional and dysfunctional because the functional can, you know, dial it down when they need to. And that's why in the book I write about this, this psychopathic janitor who, you know, I mean, he just, he just can't control it. Yeah. Will you, will you tell, so briefly tell his story? This is Rauchy because it's a great, and I should say one thing I really like, we talked about this before, the, before this started, is that there's certain areas that I can't get into because I just don't know how to write about them and neuroscience is one. Uh, but you do write about neuroscience and you, and you write about it entertainingly, which is no mean feat. Uh, the thing that always annoys me about neurologists, by the way, is that they talk to you for hours about like the brain and this and that. And then at the end, they always end it by saying, but of course, we have no idea how the human brain works. <laughs> right. um, but you're very good at... Uh, going to those places, studies, neurology, but also telling really great unfolding human stories, including the story that you're about to tell. Yeah. So, so Steve Rauchy, he's a, he's a janitor, uh, was a janitor in Schenectady, New York. And it's an amazing story of the sort of combination of amb- ambition and psychopathy, uh, even at you know the sort of smaller stages of power that you wouldn't think of it. So his sort of main goal was to become a senior level maintenance official in the Schenectady school district, right? So hardly the president of the United States, but he was a junior level official at the time. So he starts scheming and and it's the schemes are amazing. Like they have this idea of trying to cut energy usage in the school so that they can save some money. And so they set up this new sort of uh, energy management software. And the guy who's put in charge of it is like, I don't, I don't know how to operate computers. And Steve Rauchy, of course, comes in and says, oh, don't worry, I'll take care of it. No problem. Uh, I'll run it and you can take all the credit. What Steve Rauchy does when, when this guy's not looking is he turns all the lights on over the weekends on the public holidays. He turns the football lights on in the stadium to, so that at the end of the day, the, the bosses look and the energy usage has gone up under this guy who's supposed to be in charge of uh, cutting it. So they fire him and they give Rauchy the job and he sort of slowly eliminates his enemies. And, you know, when they when they start to occasionally blow the whistle on him, uh, he vandalizes their homes. He, he writes rat in spray paint on the home of one of his subordinates and then makes his coworkers go in the car in like a pilgrimage to observe what happens to people who cross him. And, you know, he speaks about himself in the third person. One of the great court transcript bits was this piece of evidence where um, someone said that he told them that the only regret he had from his childhood was that he wishes he had a friend that was his identical clone so that he would have had a Steve to go to uh, mm-hmm. as well when he was a kid. So anyway, you know, ultimately he starts placing explosives on the cars and uh, you know, in, in his office, he had explosives. It was, a, this is at a school, right? Um, so he gets caught and sentenced to quite a long prison sentence. He's still in jail. Uh, again, a, a pandemic casualty in the sense that I was hoping to go and visit him and uh, wasn't able to fly. It was, it was like March 16th of 2020. I was going to go to Schenectady. So anyway, the, the, the point is that he's one of these great cases of someone who psychopathy worked for a little while. Like he, he really did climb the chain. He was a major official in the union. He became a major, he became a very well-paid uh, person in the sort of district maintenance office. And then it all fell apart uh, when, when he started to uh, be unable to in- control those impulses that you talked about, John. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook and audio. Right, absolutely. In fact, I'm curious because I always really look out for good portrayals of psychopaths in movies and TV shows. And there's a TV drama I watched quite recently, which I won't name in case I don't want to give out any spoilers. So, but it's about somebody escaping from prison and they use, there's never, the word psychopath isn't mentioned at all in the drama. It's not about psychopaths, but I, I, but it felt really beautifully written as a, as a psychopathic um, character. And he uses all of his, you know, his Machiavellianism to charm people to get out of prison. And once he gets out of prison, one of the first things he does is, is drink, contaminated water from a from a dirty puddle and gets really sick and I just thought that, that what a great 
And again, I don't know if this is deliberate or not, but for me, that was a, a great rounded psychopathic portrayal because they always fuck up. Like they get to a very good position, but you know, they're not, the charm is superficial and there's irresponsibility and, and impulsiveness under the surface. So they always screw up, which is a worrying thing when we think about Putin. But can I lead on? So here's something really interesting is there's another leader who's in everybody's minds right now who doesn't seem, from what we know about him, to have like any of those traits. I've got this sort of half-formed thought, which I haven't actually said out loud, so I'll try and say it out loud. Is in the same, I wonder like, uh, um, look, if this is like a shit thought, just, you know, I'm willing to accept it. But okay, in the same way that social media, you know, I wrote a book that was critical of public shaming, so it's even publicly shamed, but yes, obviously in the last few years, some very positive things have come from, from social media and elements of shaming. You've got Me Too and you've got Black Lives Matter and so on. And I wonder whether in the same way that social media has shifted power in society, whether that the power of social media, which Zelensky utilizes so well, may break our love of strong men and psychopathy and and so on. So maybe Zelensky is, he sort of bucks the trend because he's a product in a way of social media. And that is such a powerful new thing. It may change everything that we've just been talking about. Yeah. You know, I think, I think the way that it does and it doesn't change that, I think it's a good thought. It's not a half formed thought, but I, but I think the way it changes things depends on where you are. So in, in Russia, for example, you know, there's a lot of effort put into controlling the media. And so Putin still enjoys significant popularity among his own people because he's got a stranglehold on the propaganda machine around him. So a lot of them aren't seeing Zelensky. I mean, there's obviously a, a certain segment of the Russian population that's online, that's sort of circumventing any of the censorship that exists and is still seeing like the real story. But I think that the, the, the problem is that the domestic audience in these places is often very well controlled. You see this in the fact that, you know, it was yesterday, they bombed the TV station, the TV antenna to knock off the, the local media in Kiev. Now, that didn't work. Because that's not the way people were getting their, their feed of Zelensky. They were getting it in real time on Twitter. And it's a huge problem for all these autocrats because it used to be the area of extreme vulnerability was this moment of sort of uh, disconnected conversation between the leader and the population. So like I used to, part of my PhD, I studied coups and how coups happen. And coups happen the most when a leader is out of the country or is sick. Because what happens is somebody strikes and they don't have an ability to sort of say, hey, wait a minute, I'm here, I'm safe, I'm still in charge, right? I mean, Zelensky, when there's all this sort of dark propaganda coming towards him that says Zelensky's fled, we have reports he's out of Kiev, and he goes on Twitter two minutes later in the streets. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely calling out the lies in real time in a way that's really charismatic. But I think Zelensky also, he poses an interesting issue for, for my argument because I'm arguing, obviously, in the book that like disproportionately bad people get power, and they absolutely do, I think. Zelensky, I think, has risen to the occasion. The problem is that you can't ever figure out how someone's going to behave in this situation because you can't test run an invasion. So my problem, and this is why the last chapter of the book is called Waiting for Cincinnatus, referring to the sort of, you know, this, the, the good leader who emerges in a crisis is Cincinnatus, who willingly gives up power and all this stuff. Zelensky's got this. But the problem is, you know, every once in a while, it's like a lottery. You, you win the lottery. Your, your, your country gets invaded. You've got Zelensky instead of Putin in charge of you, or you've got Zelensky instead of the guy who flees like in Afghanistan. And I think the problem is we've just engineered a society where we're beholden to chance. We basically get lucky sometimes when our leaders turn out to not be awful. Uh, whereas most of the time, you know, you get the test and they fail, basically. Right. Although... Um... I, I, I assume, you know, Zelensky became leader of Ukraine in, in large part because of his not superficial charm, but real charm. Sure. He played Paddington Bear and he was on Dancing with the Stars and, and was a loved, much loved comedian. So so here was somebody who, who was attractive to the electorate and didn't, as far as I know, didn't seem to display any of the kind of traits, even, even, even when he was coming up. Uh, that, that you talk about in the book. Now, yeah. this isn't like, a, I should say, like, you know, we have 
disproportionate amount of psychopathy at, at the top of society, but that doesn't mean everybody at the top of society is a, is a psychopath. So it, none of this is, is, a, is a crazy thought that there's somebody who's a completely charming non-psychopath in charge of Ukraine. But, but it's still interesting to, to talk about, right? Yeah, I mean, so the other thing that I think about a lot is when Zelensky comes to power is this sort of moment of democratic reform in Ukraine, right? So there's this idea of this sort of rebirth. It's a, it's a new direction for Ukraine, et cetera, which is one of the reasons, obviously, why, why Putin is so upset about it and wants a, a, a Kremlin-friendly stooge in his place. I think that matters because you know, one of the main points I make in the book is this idea that rotten systems attract rotten people and good systems that are moving in a better trajectory can attract better people because they're drawn to the idea of a sort of, you know, virtuous cycle. And, I, you know, I talk about this not just in the sense of politics, but also with policing. And I think this is one of the areas where, you know, portrayals of what it means to be in power really, really matter. If you present power as this thing where you crush your enemies, I mean, the people who want to crush their enemies are going to try to do it, right? Which is why you have cycles, even in countries that may have better chances of reform structurally, the crop of leaders they tend to get are, are really awful. I mean, the other thing, linking it back to the psychopaths is, you know, I, I crunched the numbers at one point in my own academic research about like what happens to leaders who lose power uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, one of the most dangerous places to lose power. And in this 50-year period after independence, 43% of the leaders who lost power were jailed, exiled, or killed. So it's like a coin flip, right? Now, one of the things that people who study psychopaths talk about is discounting risk, or perhaps, as you talked about, forgetting the pain. And you think, okay, who's so overconfident? Who's so willing to sort of roll the dice if they're going to say, oh, all those chumps, they ended up in jail or killed after they lost power, but not me. I'm the one who will game the system better. So I think in places like Haiti, for example, where you know the, the record of people losing power is basically death for a significant chunk of, of uh, the country's history, you're going to have a self-selection of people who systematically discount risk in an irrational way. And so you know, there's, there's systems that I think affect even within the world of power, it's like it's not a uniform process. And perhaps the fact that there was a democratic groundswell in Ukraine may have made it more likely that you have genuinely reform minded people who wanted to get to the top uh, in that sort of optimistic moment. Before we open it up, uh, which I will like after this question, you say in the book that politics doesn't factor in the top 10 professions where psychopathy is most prevalent, but that's only because it's such a small sample size. Uh, they haven't managed to find a way to get it into the top 10. How many of the top 10 do you do you remember? This is this is like the pop quiz part. I mean, we've got journalists in there, right? So uh, I, I believe there's lawyers. Mm. Um, what else do we have? There's, there's a lot of me- media-specific ones. Yeah, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but uh... that's interesting. Why, why do you think it? Why do you think it is? People, psychopaths like to be where things are happening, and I guess journalists like to be where things are happening. Yeah, uh, that's probably one reason. Yeah, I don't. I, it's it's an interesting thing. I put it in the book and I included it, but I do think that the sample sizes are were were, were problematic on this one. It's why I don't remember it perhaps as well as I should. Because, I mean, I think that anytime you try to rank professions, you can do you know, some analyses, but they're not, they're not doing the, the in-depth research by profession that you need to have to do a rigorous assessment. It's the same way I included, because it was funny, the sort of geographical regions um, mm-hmm. where psychopathy is represented. But like, at some point, it's going to be a little bit random with perhaps some skews towards, you know, the big cities where some of these professions are, are, are overrepresented. Oh, there's but, a famous line from a Scottish psychiatrist, which I think has been disputed. And I can't remember whether I put it in the psychopath test or not, but I certainly remember some and telling me it, which was somebody asked this eminent Scottish psychiatrist, prison psychiatrist, what percentage of um, Scottish prisoners are, are psychopaths? And he said, uh, none, because all the psychopaths are in London prisons. Uh, and I think his point was um, one of the items on the checklist is need for stimulation proneness to boredom. So you want to gravitate towards, towards the big city, the capital city. Yeah. 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 No, that may, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. And also, I mean, I think the, the narcissism elements, because the dark triad traits, which tend to be correlated with one another. I mean, if you're a narcissistic and a psychopath, 
I mean, then the narcissism might be driving you into journalism. I mean, it's, it's an exhilarating experience. The first time that lots of people are reading your byline or, or, or watching you on TV and so on. So it's, it's one of those things where you can imagine it selects for these things, but it's all about disproportionate, right? Like I always make this point. Cause I'm also, t- I'm not talking that everybody in power is bad. Like people, I, yeah, I send the book to, to various people who are actually, you know, they're, they're interviewed, but not included in the book. And they're like, were you thinking that I was some awful person all along? You know? And I'm like, no, no, no. I like, I'm, I'm trying to understand how power operates. I'm not insinuating that everybody I spoke to was a vicious psychopath. Um, although to be fair, the people who I interviewed who aren't portrayed very well in the book, they didn't get a copy. So I'm (laughs) not, not, not trying to advertise how I wrote about them necessarily. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll open up what you said about the first time you see your byline. Now I completely get that I was on a, it was, it was smash hits, uh, 1985. And I had reviewed Rob Reiner's film, Stand By Me. And I saw my byline and I think I did look around the tube carriage and think, you know, you losers, you're not, <laughs> you're not, you're not in smash hits. Uh, anyway, let's open it up to, uh, okay. Cam asks, do historians, political scientists spend too long focusing on those who wield power and too little on those who have it wield against them? Yeah. So the, the way I'll answer this question is one of the things I write about in the book, which is, I think that we do focus too much on people in power and we don't focus enough on people who never tried to get power in the first place and why that is. So, you know, with policing, for example, I think the major mistake that the police reform debate is making when people talk about how do you get better cops on the street is all of the reforms that are suggested are sort of what the police do, right? They're focusing on the people who already are in uniform. I think you want to look at who the police are and how they ended up there with recruitment. And I think that's true for politics as well. Is like you're, you're taking what I would refer to as the tip of the iceberg, the people who actually are visible because they're super powerful, and you're assuming you can solve the problem by just looking at the tip of the iceberg. What you actually have to think about is all the people below the surface who could be great leaders, who are having power wielded against them, but aren't drawn into it for some reason. And it's one of the things, you know, just on a personal level, briefly, I'd say, you know, John, you asked me at the beginning, like why I wrote the book and so on. The longer, the, the, the sort of further back answer is my mom ran for the school board when I was like eight years old. That's why I'm a political scientist, basically, right? And, uh, you know, I got interested in politics through her. And so one of the things that I remember was that the hard days as a school board member were like, the union dispute or like a parent who wants you to teach evolution is not true or whatever it is. I mean, today it's like you get death threats, you get uh, harassment, your kids get potentially uh, threatened and so on. And I worry that there's this, this aspect where we're taking an already big problem of a lot of people not seeking power because they think it's too costly or awful. And we're making it much worse because just even going into local politics or, or you know, local service, is so potentially personally disruptive or dangerous that you're going to have a self-selection out, out of power. So I, I think it's a very astute question where we need to think much more about the people who don't want power and find a way to make them uh, powerful, basically, because yeah. the people who are best at wielding it are almost always the ones who don't want it. I also wonder whether Cam was sort of, sort of talking also about how, I mean, you know, People like me and and you know Louis Theroux and other people we've we've been and there's, and there's a lot of us in mm. we've been kind of accused maybe of focusing too much on telling you know the bad people's stories tell, you know I've been criticised for you know for writing about Alex Jones for instance and so it becomes like a platforming thing why are you platforming people with these terrible ideas when there's all these you know underappreciated voices out there there's diverse voices who aren't getting you know who aren't being heard. And I think the fact, personally, I think the fact that that argument's been going on for a few years now um, has been really useful for people like me and Louis. I think it is sort of shaken us into trying to find stories that we wouldn't have found some years ago. So I'm, so I'm personally, I, I'm grateful for that. Mm. Uh, okay, Natalia asks, uh, did you observe any gender patterns in your research? Were female leaders just as corruptible as male leaders? And did they weaponize their power in different ways due to their experience of rising to the top in male-dominated circles of power? Very good question. Okay, so there's a few things to say about this. Uh, one is that what we know about psychopaths tends to be disproportionately male. Um, so there, there's that aspect. There's also the question about how women leaders behave differently when it comes to corruption and abuse. Now, all of the evidence 
all of the evidence that I've read is that women are less prone to abuse, corruption, power seeking in the same destructive ways as men. But, and there's a big but here, there's an argument that's made that you're actually comparing apples to oranges because of sexism. So the argument goes basically, if you try to compare people who are say at the same level in a company, if there's ingrained sexism, you're actually comparing exceptional women to potentially mediocre men because it's been harder for the women to climb the ranks. So there's methodological critiques that are made of these articles. So what I do in the book is I say, look, all the evidence shows that women are less prone to basically being abusive and corrupt when wielding power. But, and this is again, an important caveat, I try to avoid this idea of gender essentialism, which is the concept that women are good at some things and bad at other things and men are good at some things and bad at other things. Because I think that's used very often as a weapon of oppression against people of you know different genders and races and so on. So, so my view is that all I can say is that the, the evidence suggests this is the case. Women are, are less prone to these abuses. There may be methodological flaws. And there's also a question that is, should we sort of say some women, you know, women are innately better or worse at things. Sometimes that can be used the wrong way if the evidence were to suggest something else in a different field. So it's it's a very tricky area to write about, um, but there's massive problems with underrepresentation that I do write about explicitly in the book uh, relating to gender and race and why those things exist and why those disparities persist. Right. And I can add one anecdotal thing to that, uh, which is when I was writing the psychopath test, they used to, I don't think they exist in Britain anymore, but they used to be these things called uh, DPSD units, Dangerous and Severe Personality Disorder Units. And there's a whole story about why they sprung up and why they, a fascinating story about why they sprung up and why they ceased to be. But I guess now isn't the time to tell that story. But four of them were for men and one was for women. So anecdotally, that was the psychopath breakdown inside these these units in Britain. And when I was writing my book in like the 20, you know, mid-2010s. Tony asks, Putin seems isolated from his closest advisors. Is paranoia the final endgame for such autocrats? I'm thinking also of Stalin. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think that this is one of the things where they become victims of their own cult of personality. One of the fascinating things I write about this briefly in the book is that cults of personality seem irrational on the outside. So like, why does Kim Jong-un invent all these lies about himself, right? Like the idea that he learned to drive when he was three years old or that his father composed 10,000 operas, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the reason is because they're loyalty tests. They're ways to get people to say things that they know are untrue. And then you can sort of separate out the, the people who are willing to say whatever, no matter how outlandish, from those who are unwilling to say whatever. And the problem is, as the society accepts them, so as like the normal person on the street starts saying, oh, yes, Kim Jong-un, of course he wrote 10,000 operas, that becomes less effective as a loyalty test. So you invent a crazier myth and there's a ratcheting effect. So you see this the longer that these autocrats are in charge, the more crazy the myths become. But they're rational because they're used as loyalty tests. So what I'm worried about for someone like Putin as the war goes badly and he starts you know, committing more and more war crimes is there be, there's going to be a whittling effect of the people who stand up to him. This is something I, on a very small level and certainly not with a psychopath, but I worked in politics uh, in the US before I did my PhD. And you just, I mean, it's a very easy thing to understand. Like you have a certain number of chips where you're going to basically play them and upset the person you work for. And you have to decide when to play those chips. If you play too many of them, you're fired. If you don't play enough of them, you lose or something goes catastrophically wrong. And Putin's probably in a situation where people are terrified of, of sort of saying you're, you're wrong. And so he starts to get paranoid about the people around him, that they're not loyal to him and so on. It's a very dangerous, I think, psychological cycle that you often see before uh, despots are, are deposed. And fingers crossed at some point this will happen to Vladimir Putin because I think, I think he has miscalculated in a way that has made it possible that he will not be in power uh, in, the, in the sort of medium term future, which I would not have said two weeks ago uh, as my read of the situation. Helen asks, uh, did Katie Hopkins have all 20 traits of the psychopath test? I actually can't remember what her answers were. I, I, I remember much better um, Chainsaw Al Dunlap from the psychopath test and how he redefined. I went to his house to um, uh, do the psychopath test on him, his giant mansion, which was filled with sculptures of predatory animals. It's like Narnia. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I said to him, it's, it's as if the Queen of Narnia and, my, uh, and Midas 
flew over a fierce zoo and turned everything to stone. And he went, what? And I went, nothing. Um, <laughs> but I, but I, so I did the test on him and I just remember he kind of redefined all the items as business positives. So uh, shallow affect, who wants to be weighed down with nonsense emotions and um, cunning manipulative. And he said, that's leadership. So um, that's, that's how he redefined it. Uh, Angelo asks, are psychopathic men in power capable of changing their ways? That's a very, I've got, I've got an answer to that, but do you want to answer it first? Yeah, although, I, I mean, I'd love to hear from you as well, John. I mean, my, 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 when I talk to the experts who study this, they said that this is why they're so careful with the clinical diagnoses, because there's actually something that's genuinely wrong with their brain, right? I mean, so uh, when, you, when you end up getting diagnosed as a psychopath, it has serious implications for this question of whether you can probably be rehabilitated or not, particularly if you committed quite a violent crime. So, you know, it's one of those things that actually philosophically is an interesting angle that I, I, I don't discuss in the book, but it's sort of lurking in the back of my mind. It's like, well, we want to keep these people out of power, but if they're born with a broken brain, basically, you know, then it is something where, you know, condemning them in the same way is slightly different because it's, it's, it's something that is functionally not working about that person. I mean, maybe, John, you have a different view on this, but. No, unfortunately, I, I, have, the, I have the same view. It's, it's a bleak oh, and, and view just from personal experience and from research. Um, it's the same view. I, I remember I asked Martha Stout, uh, so if you're mad, you know, if, if, if some, I did a radio interview with her at one point and I said, so if somebody listening to this is, is married to a psychopath, what, what should they do? And Martha Stout's answer was leave. Yeah. Which just felt very bleak. She said, you can't hurt their feelings because there aren't any feelings to hurt. And you're absolutely right, of course, to say that's why the clinical diagnosis is so important because, you know, this is like a serious condition. Yeah. And the conclusion I, I came to just from talking to people was, they stop. It, it's certainly not like all, all people who score high on the psychopath test commit acts, criminal acts, but there's probably an argument that they all commit some kind of malevolence, whether it's domestic malevolence or just being a bad boss. Or, and it may not be immediately, it probably isn't immediately, it's, it's something that creeps up over the years. But the sort of slightly bleak conclusion that I came to was they only really stop offending, especially if they're like criminal offenders when they're just too old and tired to get off the sofa. Yeah. So were I, were I a psychopath, I would probably have stopped offending about a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, Murray asks, is power most effective when its exercise is hidden rather than manifest? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it depends on the arena that we're talking about because the sort of behind the scenes, you know, Rasputin like uh, machinations that, that, that do exist in politics. Um, yeah. I mean, there's certain people who gravitate to those roles as opposed to the roles that are in the spotlight and they're different types of people. I mean, one of the, one of the arguments I'm making in the book is that the system sorts people, right? So uh, people who are drawn to be police officers are disproportionately drawn to policing. And those people are particularly enamored with the idea of walking around with a badge and a gun. And that's potentially a problem that you have to counteract in your recruitment strategies. And the same is true for politics, right? If you've got a person who really likes the idea of sort of being the, the devil on the shoulder, so to speak, or, or the Machiavellian uh, you know, advisor, uh, it's a different kind of person. So I don't think it's necessarily better or worse. I think there's differences in how the traits uh, perform. But I do think that one of the things that is worrisome, and this relates to the discussion we're having about Putin, is you know, there is something more insidious about hidden acts of malevolence in a way, because you can't name them and, and expose them. So when Putin's oligarchs are in the spotlight, and rightly so, those oligarchs are propped up by Western lawyers, accountants, reputation management you know, specialists, offshore bank accounts. And those are the people who are wielding power in the shadows, yet they're helping the people who are in the spotlight. So it's not that they're better or worse. It's that they often work together in a way where you know, it's quite difficult sometimes to expose the seeming acceptable abuses of power because they're done in a way that's dressed up as something it's not. And this is, you know, it's like the best example of this is like Denmark is the top of the corruptions perceptions index, like the least corrupt country in the world. And yet like one of its banks, Danske Bank, 
was home to the worst money laundering history, like scandal in history recently. <laughs> and it's because it's like they, you know, they dotted the I's and crossed the T's and like they paid the fine. And it's not like they stole the money from the oligarchs. So it's, this is, this is an ang- angle where I think some of the times power is dressed up as something is not, it's not. And it may be more insidious for the fact that you can't expose it as easily. Margaret asks, uh, you talk a lot about psychopaths, and I should say that's kind of my fault because that's the, the, the aspect <laughs> of Brian's book that obviously I, I know about uh, too. Um, but and, and it is a significant part of Brian's book. It's not like I've taken a, a footnote and made the whole no. hour about that. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff in Brian's book too. Um, what about those who empower them, the corrupt elites, the orthodoxies, and the oligar- oligarchs with shady interests who create the monsters in power, monsters in inverted commas? Yeah, well, this is so there's a big part of the book where I talk about this idea of the sort of situational malleability of human behavior, which by which I mean that like people can do bad things if they're put in the wrong situation. And those are what I think the enablers often end up being. So there's a lot of enablers who end up in situations where it's become socially acceptable to do bad things on behalf of bad people as long as the, as the society has sort of said, oh, well, this is just part of the way things work. And this is why you have the sort of you know, crooked dealings and so on with um, seemingly respectable societies as well, because people get away with it. So, you know, uh, one of the things that I struggled with on a personal level when I was interviewing some of these people is sort of thinking to myself, I'd I'd leave the interview and, you know, the easiest thing to do is to be like, oh, what an awful person, what a monster, you know? The harder thing is to think, you know, if if I grew up in this society where basically your prospects are tied to climbing the ladder in an extremely brutal political system where you don't win by being the best candidate and you don't win by being charming. You win by rigging elections and crushing your opponent and being willing to murder people. You know, at some point that permeates to the rest of society and creates some really bad incentives for people. And so a lot of the research I talk about in the book shows how the same person put into two different situations ends up behaving very differently. The, the best example of this, and one of the weirdest things I did for the book, was uh, I interviewed Paul Bremer on a chairlift because uh, he's the guy who ran Iraq in 2003. He was appointed by George W. Bush, and he's now uh, a ski instructor in Vermont. So I flew <laughs> out and uh, and interviewed him in Vermont, and you know we yeah. chatted on the chairlift and so on. But like when he was like the ambassador to Norway, he was like. Everything was perfect. He did everything right. And then like the first meeting he gets to in Iraq where he's living in like Saddam Hussein's son's palace and being shelled in the morning is he's like, do you think we should shoot the looters? Right. I mean, like if you're in Oslo, you're not going to be like, should we shoot some people? Right. So there's this profound insight he had, no matter what you think of him, that he's like, everything was different. I was literally in a dictator's palace. I inherited a dictatorship. I was not making the same choices from the same menu. And so I think this is one of the things that I, that I think is worth appreciating is there are situational aspects. And that's why the system reforms are so important, because it's not just condemning the individuals. It's also condemning the broken systems that produce them. Yeah. God, it's funny to think of Paul Bremer as being a ski instructor. Like, was he, did you ask him? I mean, he must have. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I took a ski lesson with him, which is funny because I'm I'm a better skier than he is because that was my high school sport was downhill ski racing. So, but like the first, one of the first things he said to me, I was on the chairlift. I write about this in the book. I'm on the chairlift with him and I'm like talking, trying to like ask him about NATO or something, right? And we stop like underneath the uh, sort of chairlift tower. And he turns to me, he says, when the kids, when I'm teaching the kids, I always tell them that if you stop under the chairlift tower, it's good luck and you should make a wish. And I'm like, this is like not what I was expecting, right? <laughs> it's like a guy who's like in charge of Iraq. So it's-, it's like the general in White Christmas, which I happened to weirdly be watching last night. If you were Big Crosby, you'd be like getting right. the whole airborne division over to sing him a song <laughs> to cheer him up. You should do that. Yeah. Okay, that was the last question. Uh, and I've thoroughly enjoyed this. And thank you, everybody, for, for coming. And thank you, Brian. It's been a really lovely thing. So this is uh, the final question. It's Suzanne's question. What's the best way to deal with, work with a psychopathic boss so that you can do your job effectively without succumbing to their actions? I mean, that's really getting to the kind of cold face fix. That's very hard. Um, and, and I have thoughts, of course. But, um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll say it briefly and then I'll turn over to you, John, because you, you've probably got better thoughts on this. But I mean, I think at this stage, uh, if you genuinely think you have a psychopathic boss and they're being abusive, 
if you're lucky enough to live in a Western democracy, that's where you sort of try to get them out of that position and it's worth whistleblowing and so on. It's not, it's not worth um, just passively resisting because they're, they're likely not going to get better and they can wreak havoc on an organization in a way that's highly destructive. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's a great answer, which I can't better, but just to say that, you know, I, uh, I think a lot of people will tell you anecdotally that if your boss is a psychopath, there's a lot of encouragement for every, all the non-psychopaths to start behaving in a more psychopathic way to keep up. And you're right. One of the great changes of, of the last few years is that it's, it's much more possible to, to do something about that now. Mm. Cool. Well, I thought that was such a, that was a great hour. Thank you. It was thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, so thank you everybody for coming and Brian thank you so much so Brian's book is is Corruptible and my book about the same thing is The Psychopath Test and and that's it thank you everybody very much it was great questions and I thought a really lovely conversation thank you this episode was produced by Luke Naylapero and the series is made by me and Dana Outcolt the editor is John Doughty Brian's book, Corruptible, is out now. Do visit us at howtoacademy.com for live stream events with former Labour Party leader Ed Miliband, Elliot Higgins, founder of the groundbreaking investigative journalism collective Bellingcat, and Lucy Easthope, the UK's leading authority on disaster response. And, of course, we have lots of guests from the worlds of art and culture, health and well-being, and the natural sciences. And that's Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com. We make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.